The sounds you're listening to are of Ferry Creek, a beautiful spot on Howe Sound, which is situated a little under 50 kilometres from Vancouver, just off the Cedar Sky Highway. There's a swanky golf course and an upmarket housing development there now, but it's also the place where Pat Lowther went as a child, where she honeymooned in 1963, and later the place where she brought her children. It's a title of one of her poems, and it's where her body was found in 1975. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Murder of a Poet. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. Pat Lowther was last seen alive on Tuesday, September 23rd, 1975, when her oldest daughter Kathy had dropped by for a visit. She'd complained to Kathy of a migraine, but otherwise she seemed in good spirits. But on the Thursday, Pat failed to show up to teach a poetry workshop. And even more disturbing, Kathy's 19th birthday arrived, but Pat did not. On the Saturday, Pat was scheduled to do an important reading at the Ironworkers Hall in Vancouver. To the disappointment of the audience, the three other poets continued on without her. Kathy, Pat's daughter from her first marriage, was really worried. Going away without telling anyone and missing events was completely out of character for her mother. Kathy dropped by the house again, and this time ran into her stepfather, Roy Lowther, as he was getting out of his car. Roy told her that Pat had left on September 24th, and all he knew was that she'd gone back east. He didn't know when she'd be back. That seemed highly unlikely to Kathy. Her mother hadn't mentioned travelling. And as co-chair of the League of Canadian Poets, she was in the middle of organising a major poetry conference, which would take place in Victoria the following month. She had just started teaching a workshop at the University of British Columbia's Creative Writing Department earlier that month, and she would never go away and leave her students in the lurch. More days passed, and Cathy returned to Pat's East Vancouver home with her grandmother and aunt to look for clues as to where Pat could have gone. The only items of clothing they could find missing were the yellow pants and white poncho that Pat had been wearing when Kathy last saw her. As far as the women knew, she had little money and had not asked to borrow her mother's suitcases as she usually did when she travelled outside the province. When Kathy confronted her stepfather again, Roy told her that Pat had taken a briefcase and a black suitcase for her trip. Kathy didn't believe him. On October 1st, A week after she'd last seen her mother, she went to the police station and reported Pat missing to Fred Menzies of the Missing Persons Squad. A couple of days later, Cathy returned to the house, and this time she noticed that there was a note on the dining room table from Roy to his wife. She was sure that it hadn't been there on her last visit. This is from an article in The Province on April 13, 1977, read by Mark Dunn. Pat, I hope you return soon and are well. 
some sort of solution will have to be worked out for this problem with legal aid. We are living on Main Island. The children are happy and well and are attending school there. I've moved only the things we needed and some pictures and records. You can reach us at this number. Everyone has been extremely worried about your disappearance. Please contact us. Roy. In his 1991 book, Police Beat, former Vancouver Police Sergeant and newspaper columnist Joe Swan wrote about Pat's case. He said, Missing people usually turn up within a few days with a perfectly good reason for their absence. But this time it felt different. Detective Menzies had a bad feeling about Pat's disappearance and wondered why her husband wasn't the one to report her missing. He called Roy Lowther and asked him to come down to the station to discuss it. Roy came in the next afternoon. He told Menzies that he and Pat had gone to bed together as usual on the night of September 23rd and then woken up the next morning around 7. He got the kids ready for school and noticed that Pat was not in the house. When she didn't come back by lunchtime, he thought that she'd left him for another man. He showed Menzies letters that Pat had received from Eugene McNamara, a university professor and poet from Windsor, Ontario. Roy felt that the letters proved that the two were lovers, and suggested to Menzies that Pat had gone to Windsor, Ontario, to be with him. Even though no body had been found, Menzies decided to hand the case over to Homicide. On October 7th, detectives Bob Hale and Roy Chapman asked Roy Lowther to come back to the police station. Roy repeated the same story, but this time he added a new detail. He said that while he was giving the kids their breakfast, he heard the sound of the front door slamming at around 7.15am. This seemed suspicious and the detectives asked Roy to take a polygraph. He refused. They asked him for a photo of Pat. He said he didn't have one. They asked Roy if they could look around the house for anything that could help them find his wife. Roy agreed to this, and when the detectives went through the house, they noticed that there was a mattress missing from the couple's bed. The detectives contacted Eugene McNamara in Windsor, Ontario, who told them that the last time he'd seen Pat was in New Brunswick in October 1974, almost a year before. They checked airlines and rail and bus companies to see if Pat had bought a ticket. She hadn't. Her credit cards were also untouched. The first newspaper article appeared in the Vancouver Sun on Wednesday, October 8th, and the headline read, Well-known poet vanishes, city police investigating. This is Mark Dunn reading. Pat Lowther, 40, vanished without a trace two weeks ago from her home on East 46th, and members of her family say they fear for her life. Miss Lowther, a part-time instructor in creative writing at the University of British Columbia, was to have conducted a poetry workshop at the university September 25th, but failed to appear. Her husband, Roy, interviewed today from a cabin in Maine Island where he's now living with the couple's two children, said, I last heard from my wife about September 25th when she phoned to say she was going east. She said she was going to Ontario, but no one has seen her. Lowther said his wife's disappearance is causing us a lot of heartache. He said his wife had often been away on reading tours and business trips, but nothing like this. Lowther visited Vancouver Police Headquarters yesterday to talk to detectives about the disappearance. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder 
as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. At age 40, Pat was a mother of four and a rising star in Canada's literary circles. She was born in 1935 and for several years lived up at the top of North Vancouver's Lynn Valley Road. Her father, Arthur Tinmouth, was a caretaker at the Rice Lake Reservoir in Lynn Headwaters when it supplied much of Vancouver's drinking water. Pat's mother, Virginia, was from Butte, Montana, and a rockette with New York's Radio City Music Hall before moving to Vancouver and marrying Arthur in 1932. The couple went on to have two more children after Pat. Arthur took a job as a sheet metal worker at the shipyards and they moved into a house on East 10th in North Vancouver's Lower Lonsdale area. Money was tight and Pat left school at age 16 to work as a key punch operator at a North Vancouver shipbuilding company. Pat started writing poetry as a young child and she had her first poem published in the Vancouver Sun when she was only 10 years old. When she was 18, she met Bill Domphouse through her work. They married and had two kids. But they had split up, and Pat took daughter Kathy to live in the basement of her parents' house. Alan went to live with Bill. Pat began to hang out with other struggling writers. One of the writers was Roy Lowther. He was 11 years older than Pat, well-educated with a Bachelor of Arts from the University of British Columbia and a Master's in Philosophy from Berkeley in California. But he was something of a radical. Roy had grown up in Britannia Beach, about 50 kilometres from Vancouver, and then only accessible by boat or train. It's now a stop along the Cedar Sky Highway, a 10-minute drive from Squamish. Roy's father, Armstrong Lowther, worked in the mine as a watchman and died of pneumonia in 1948. By that time, Roy was already an active member of the Communist Party of Canada. In fact, he'd spent 18 months in a federal prison in Washington State in the early 1950s because he crossed the border illegally from British Columbia after being deported from the US for his political views in 1949. Roy married his first wife, Hannah, in Toronto in 1952. Fred was born a year later, and they moved back to Vancouver in 1954 and had two more children, Ruth and Mario. Roy's daughter, Ruth Lowther, from his first marriage, tells me that her father was diagnosed with anxiety hysteria after being assaulted as a young boy. Roy started seeing a psychiatrist when he was just nine years old. Ruth says that her mother was extremely violent towards her husband and her kids. Her normally soft-spoken, affectionate father reacted by yelling and bashing his head against every available spot on the wall until his forehead was bloodied. When Hannah learned that Roy was seeing Pat, the attacks and verbal abuse escalated. Eventually, says Ruth, Roy started hitting back. Ruth says when she was four, she remembers that her father snapped. He threw her mother onto the floor, put his hands around her neck, and tried to strangle her. All Ruth remembers is screaming in terror and seeing their elderly neighbour watching from her kitchen window. 
A short time later, the police showed up. Her mother survived the attempted strangulation, and at her request, Rory was taken to the Crease Clinic at Riverview Psychiatric Hospital. Roy and Hannah divorced in 1963, and he married Pat later that same year. Ruth and her brothers attended the wedding. Ruth remembers Pat as being gentle and beautiful. She thought of her as her fairy godmother. Ruth said she loved going to Roy and Pat's house every Saturday, which often took place when Pat's children, Kathy and Alan, were there. But Ruth's mother hated that the children were with Pat, and she complained to a judge that Roy was turning the kids against her. The judge agreed with Hannah's petition and changed visitation to every other Saturday, and only if the kids wanted to go. Ruth says that when her father came to pick them up, she and her older brother were forced to step out onto the porch and yell at their father, I don't want to go with you. And then they were told by their mother to turn and go back into the house. By this time, Ruth was nine, and the next time she saw her father, she was in her 20s, and Roy was in prison. Roy sold life insurance for a time. When he started living with Pat, he returned to UBC for his teaching diploma, then worked as a substitute music teacher in the Maple Ridge, Delta and Coquitlam school districts. He spent years chairing the Vancouver Poetry Society and was the managing editor of a poetry magazine for the Vancouver Writers Guild. Roy considered himself a working-class poet, and his poems were occasionally published in various periodicals and papers but few people thought he had much talent. He sang folk songs, taught folk singing to a Labour Union youth group and ran unsuccessfully as an NDP candidate for the Vancouver Parks Board. After that, they married and moved to 566 East 46th Avenue. They had two little girls in rapid succession. The house where they lived on 46th Avenue and where Pat was murdered is still there, not far from Mountain View Cemetery. It's a lovely three-storey house with a welcoming front porch and stained glass windows. The last time I was by it, it was painted a mustard yellow. A church graced the end of the street. It's a really pleasant neighbourhood on Vancouver's east side. In the 1960s, it would have been a busy house with three little girls, stacks of books and papers piled on every surface. One end of the dining table was reserved for Pat and her old Remington typewriter. At night... Friends would drop by and fill the house with poetry and smoke. Friends described Pat as short, fragile, shy, with long dark hair and a strong chin. For a short time, well-known poet Milton Acorn lived with the Lowthers. Lorna Crozier is one of Canada's most well-known and loved poets, as was her partner Patrick Lane, who unfortunately died in 2019. Patrick was a close friend of Pat Lowthers, and while Lorna never met Pat, She attended one of her readings, and she's won three Pat Lowther Awards, which are given annually to the best book of poetry by a Canadian woman. I never met her personally. I just heard Patrick's stories about it, and he was very close to her when they were all sort of starting out in Vancouver. And his press, Fairy Stone House, that he did with Seymour Maine and Bill Bissett, they were the first to publish her poems. And uh, she was a a housewife with little kids, and he was a working-class guy with three little kids, and they wanted to be poets against all the odds, you know, because Mm. neither of them came from the education background or learned households that you would have thought would have produced a poet. And they both really understood the working class because that's who they were. 
And I, I think that's part of the remarkable quality of her work is that it's very both down to earth, but I think sophisticated and technically adept all at the same time. I heard her read before I met Patrick. There used to be a reading series at kind of an old heritage building in Regina. She was reading with P.K. Page, and I had never heard either of them read before. And although I appreciated P.K.'s reading, and here was this elegant, you know, almost British voice, and I remember her being dressed in a long gown. That's the way you dress to read poetry in those days. And then there was Pat with a... I remember correctly, a kind of a kerchief on her head, you know, and uh, it was her poetry that just made my blood tingle. I just thought, wow, here is the real thing. Here is a strong, personal voice that is speaking to women. And in a way I hadn't really heard before. Amid the chaos, Pat published her first collection of poems in 1968. Her friend, Alan Safarik, published her second volume through Blackfish Press. And only weeks before her death, she'd signed a contract with Oxford University Press for her third book of poetry, her first to be published by a major press. When he was in his early 20s and studying at Simon Fraser University, Alan Safarik and his friend and fellow poet Brian Brett started up a magazine called Blackfish. Alan met Pat Lowther in 1970 and he was soon publishing her poems. They became close friends and stayed close friends right up until her death five years later. I was very close to her. I, I couldn't talk about it for a long time. I just, well, when I start talking about it, sometimes I just start to cry and I can't stop. Eh? It's just one of those things in my life that has affected me so much was her. Eh? We were poets and we were loving poetry. So we started a small magazine and eventually met her and then... God, we started publishing in our magazine. And, you know, I hit it off with her. I was 21 or something, and she was 40. I mean, not we weren't involved in a relationship. We were just really good friends. We could talk with her. I learned so much about writing from her. She was so interesting. She had a, a wholly different take from anyone I'd ever met about writing. So I started talking a lot with her and hanging around with her. And it just choked me my whole life, you know, because she was such a beautiful person. And her writing ability was amazing, you know, and she was just so intelligent about it. So I used to go to the house quite a bit, and I got to know her, and, I, and that's how we got to know Roy. And, you know, he was terrifying, really, to be around for me. He was imagining she was having affairs with everybody. Roy was a very untidy guy, kind of unkempt and very opinionated, and his work was really bad. And he kind of mentored Pat. He was much older than her. And he was very involved in the left-wing kind of circles in Vancouver. And what happened is that she developed tremendously, and he didn't. She had a big ashtray. She used to smoke cigarettes, matinee filter, but she, she didn't drink hardly. A little glass of wine once in a while, but she was very straight. Pat and Roy's mutual love of poetry and their interest in left-wing politics likely brought them together. But by 1971, the marriage was on the skids. Roy was unemployed and the couple was soon living on welfare. Thanks to some Canada Council grants and her status as an official with a national poets organisation, Pat was able to travel. But Roy was upset because Pat didn't invite him along on the trips or to her readings. As she became more successful, Roy became bitter and resentful. In a letter to Patrick Lane, published in the province in 1976, Pat writes... My kids are fine, fascinating, exasperating, like all kids, I guess. 
As for Roy, I see no way out of continuing to live with him. I finally escaped the emotional bondage much, much too late. But leaving would mean having to be a full-time mother, with no time or energy for writing, or simply being the person I have to be. Some people could do it, but I know my limits. I'd end up so neurotic and bitchy, I'd be no good to my kids either. But living as a family is dishonest, and harmful too. It's the kind of situation psychologists devise to drive white rats crazy. What a depressing letter to lay on you. Oh well, nothing lasts forever, and it's spring, which helps. I'm going to be creatively domestic and clean my little girl's bedroom. Pat's friends described her as warm and beautiful, but also passive. But while she may have been passive in her life, her poems were anything but. She wrote about blood, violence and sex. Poems with titles such as To a Woman Who Died of 34 Stab Wounds and some of her work carried an eerie sense of foreshadowing, especially a poem about Furry Creek, where she'd played as a child and honeymooned with Roy in 1963. She gave another friend a copy of her book Milkstone with the inscription Pat Lowther, Rest in Peace, 1935 to 1975. You know, she's got such a strong voice that comes out in her poetry and, you know, some of it was so violent. Yeah. You know, everything I've seen about her describes her as being a really passive person in her life and, you know, staying with Roy and and, and that sort of thing. And I haven't actually been able to figure that out. Patrick said he asked her, almost begged her several times to leave Roy because I guess she'd show up with, you know, bruise on her face or whatever. Mm. And uh, she wasn't she wasn't listening to any of that. She wasn't having any of that. Maybe she felt some empathy or sympathy. Stayed out of loyalty, which is not a, an unusual thing for a woman, particularly when, when he's the father of your children. It's not an unusual place to be, is it? When Arlene Lampert, Executive Director of the League of Canadian Poets, phoned Pat from Toronto on September 25th, she was already dead. Roy answered the phone and told Arlene, You don't know what she's done. She's gone. You know she has a lover in Windsor, don't you? As it happened, Pat had told Arlene about their affair. The same day, Roy phoned Pat's aunt Elsie, who lived on Main Island, to see if he could bring his two little daughters to stay in a cabin that they owned there. Roy told Pat's family, friends, even his two daughters, that she'd deserted her family to go back east to be with her lover. Although her friends would have liked this to be true, they knew she wouldn't leave her children. And as Alan Safarik says, an attempt to get Pat and the kids away from Roy the year before failed miserably when Roy came home early and caught them. At one point, we actually hired a truck and started trying to move her out of the house. And he was going to be away for a week, so we thought, okay, we're moving now. And she was convinced she had to go. So right in the middle of this truck, and right as we're starting to take the furniture, he shows up. And he starts beating his head against the door jam. He just beats his head until his head is a bloody pulp. His forehead is just like, oh, smashing his head into the... And she's folded. She said, I can't leave him like this. So, didn't know what to do. And it was he was screaming, yelling, and carrying on. So, we left. She didn't go. You know, he had to kind of hold on her, you know. She hadn't exactly been keeping her long-distance affair a secret, and she and Eugene McNamara rarely saw each other. 
McNamara was an English professor at the University of Windsor, and he and Pat had first connected when she sent him some poems which he published in the late 1960s. They were both members of the League of Canadian Poets and first met in Vancouver in 1972 when he was on a reading tour. They later hooked up another four times in Victoria, Edmonton, Windsor and in Fredericton, New Brunswick. They kept in touch by letters and through poetry that he sent to her, including a collection of his poems, which he'd inscribed with a quote by Michelangelo, which when translated from Italian said, Always I am with you. Even if I were blind, I would find you. Yes, he said, he was in love with her, and they had planned to meet at the upcoming poetry convention in Victoria, scheduled to begin on October 13th, 1975, which turned out to be the day Pat's body was found in Ferry Creek. Shortly before Pat's murder, McNamara wrote to tell her that he'd received an anonymous phone call and believed it was from Roy. The letter to Pat from McNamara was postmarked September 12, 1975. The letter was printed in the province on April 14, 1977. This is Mark Dunn reading. Pat got a phone call from somebody who said he was calling from Toronto, who warned me not to go to Victoria. Otherwise, my wife and children would have to learn the real reason for my going about my sleeping arrangements and my past activities. He gave a name, something like Tom Harrison or Aronson or something like that. He said to write to the chairwoman and cancel. Do you know anybody that fits the above? He seems to know a lot about me and also that you were a chairwoman. I feel just like I picked up a rock and saw what was under it. How horrible the phone is. So anonymous. So easy. Love. The signature could not be deciphered, although it looked like Jean. Ruth Lowther thinks that her father's mental illness kicked into high gear around this time and that he focused all his shame, failures and need for revenge onto gentle Pat. He was living in the basement of the house by this time and he suspected that she was getting ready to leave and he would be losing his children all over again. Ruth has her father's journals which are filled with rage at Pat's accomplishments and his own failures as a poet, a teacher and a father. A trigger, according to Roy in his journal, was when one day that summer of 1975, Roy was at New Brighton Park and his eldest son Fred silently walked past him, sneering at him. By that September, Roy could no longer contain his anger. Alan Safarik believes that being passed over by his wife to give a reading at the Ironworkers Hall in Vancouver may have been the event that sent Roy over the edge. Roy felt that he was the poet for the working class and it should have been him on stage with the other up-and-coming poets, David Day, Pete Trower and Patrick Lane. He killed her for poetry. That's what part that really got to me, that someone would do that, you know. It's that important. He's so obsessed that reading and she got those poets downtown there, that labor reading thing. He wanted on. He was even phoning up the local MP. Anything he could to try to get on that bill, you know. Do you, do you think that's what put him over the edge? I think it did. Huh. I think it was one of the reasons because he kept saying it. If he wasn't going to be there, neither was she. Lorna Crozier agrees that not being invited to speak with the other poets may just have been the tipping point for Roy. When Pat and David Day and Peter Trower and my Patrick were scheduled to read at a big union hall. They were all really excited. It was a huge crowd. I've still got the poster from that day that Patrick kept. 
And Patrick said when she didn't show up, he knew something was wrong because this was a highlight for her to read to this kind of crowd and to this number of people. And Roy thought he should have been the one who was invited Mm. because he was the big socialist. He was the guy who should have been reading to, to, to union members, not her. And that it was probably that kind of jealousy that sparked his final violence with her. On October 13th, 1975, Canadian Thanksgiving, a family hiking at Ferry Creek were crossing the train bridge and they saw a naked body lying face down in the water, wedged between some rocks. While the body was badly decomposed and impossible to identify, Detectives Hale and Chapman of the Vancouver Police Department felt that there was a good chance that it would turn out to be the missing poet, especially when they learned that Ferry Creek was a favourite spot of the Lowthers and close to Britannia Beach, where Roy had grown up. Even though the body still hadn't been officially identified, the detectives decided to make a trip to Maine Island, tell Roy about the discovery, and gauge his reaction. Maine is one of the Gulf Islands situated about halfway between Vancouver Island and the mainland, and the Lowthers often spent summer holidays there. The detectives did not have grounds to get a search warrant, so they asked Roy about the missing mattress, and he told them he'd brought it to the cabin. When they looked at it, they could see that it had been recently washed, but not thoroughly enough to get rid of some reddish stains. Roy told the detectives he had no idea why it was wet. Perhaps his wife had tried to wash it. Reminded that she'd been missing for three weeks, he said that it was probably just from the dew. Chapman asked Roy why he would take the mattress if he thought his wife was returning home. Roy told them that there was another mattress in the basement, and in the meantime, Pat could sleep on the Chesterfield. When asked if he'd brought any tools from Vancouver, Roy produced a hammer. The detectives brought the mattress and the hammer back to Vancouver to test for blood type in the police lab. Two days later, the body was identified through fingerprints and dental records as Pat Lowther. An autopsy found the cause of death was a severe blow to the back of her neck, so hard that it had smashed in her skull. Now that the body had been found, the police investigation really kicked into gear. The forensics team was sent to the Lowther house, and when they checked the bedroom, they found 117 blood spots on the walls. The detectives went back to Main Island to arrest Roy. This time, they came on an RCMP boat. Detective Chapman explained to Roy that blood had been found on the hammer and asked him to explain the blood stains on the mattress and blood spots found on the walls of the bedroom. Roy had no explanation for the blood on the hammer, but he suggested that the blood on the mattress and on the walls could be menstrual blood. Chapman told him he really didn't think so. Roy admitted to being the anonymous caller who had phoned McNamara and told him to stay away from the conference and Pat. The Lowther's two little girls, then aged seven and nine, were taken by boat to Victoria and placed in foster care. My name is Robert Deboo. I'm an ex-prosecutor in the city of Vancouver. I started there in 1972 and stopped in 1976 and went into private practice and was doing criminal defense work and family law. I've now been practicing law for 50 years. What was your involvement in the uh, Pat Lowther case? 
I was a prosecutor uh, in the city of Vancouver and was the assigned prosecutor on Pat Lowther's murder case. Roy Chapman requested that I attend with him to the home in which they alleged the murder had taken place to view it. I liked to attend the scene, the location of a crime. It just gave you a better sense of confidence that, that you felt you knew your way around. What did you find? In the bedroom, they had this ugly bordello-style red velvet-flocked wallpaper, but um, I could see blood, little bits of blood. And blood is fascinating for forensic investigators because you can see the direction in which the blood flew. You can see, like, the big teardrop and then a tail, and the tail points back towards the source of where the blood came from. But what was fascinating to me is that there was so much blood in that bedroom. On top of the valance, you know, the molding over the top mm. of the window, I found blood that had not been cleaned up. There was dripping on the inside of the frame at head level on one side. And you could see underneath on the floor where blood had attempt and attempted to be cleaned up. But the person trying to clean this up had failed at doing a very good job. And so all of this was, I think, deep-seated anger welling up within him that ended up in this ferocious attack with a hammer on her head. I think she was asleep hmm. when he approached her and hit her with the hammer the first time, and there were more than one blow. Do you think it was planned? No, okay. I, I do not. I think it was a rage. Hmm. I, I think it was uh, certainly not uh, your classic first-degree murder. A crowd of more than 100 friends, relatives, students and colleagues gathered for Pat's funeral at the Unitarian Church of Vancouver on West 49th. Several of her friends read poems. Alan Safarik, whose Blackfish Press published his second collection of poems, The Age of the Bird, read a poem for her called Death of a Poet. Pat's friend and mentor, Dorothy Livesay, wrote a letter to the editor of the Globe and Mail in which she said that Pat's death was a body blow to the cause of poetry in Canada. She said... Although only beginning to be known in the East, she had for 10 years been producing the most stirring, lyrical, meaningful and committed poetry of any written by man or woman in Canada or the world. Roy Lowther's murder trial was held in courtroom 406. Up four flights of stairs in the old law courts, which is now the Vancouver Art Gallery on West Georgia Street. There were 27 exhibits placed into evidence, including the double mattress, the hammer, and a portion of Pat's skull. All the evidence against Roy Lowther was circumstantial, but there was a lot of it. Prosecutor John Hall argued that Roy murdered his wife because he was jealous, jealous of her burgeoning career, and jealous that she had a lover in Ontario, and wrote poems about their affair. Hall played to a packed courtroom and jury of nine men and three women. The Crown put 25 witnesses on the stand that included Pat's family and friends. Don Cummings, 32, was called to the stand. 
He told the court that he had rented a room in the basement of the Lowther's house from November 1973 until just after Pat's murder. He often heard them arguing at night, he said, and when Pat went missing, Roy told him that she'd gone back east to be with another man and that he and the children were permanently moving to Main Island. The following day, Pat's mother Virginia Tinmouth took the stand. She said that just three months before her daughter's death, she, Pat and Roy, had been together in her North Vancouver kitchen. Roy had said Pat was doing poetry readings at universities, things that he should have been doing. Virginia mentioned that Pat looked tired and said that she hoped that her daughter was having a little fun. Roy then brought his fist down on the table and told her that Pat is the only exciting woman that he'd ever known and no other man would ever get her. He knocked over his chair as he got up and left the room. Roy took the stand at noon on Tuesday, April 12th. A reporter described him as unhealthy-looking. This is from the article in the Vancouver Sun, read by Mark Dunn. With his pale complexion and narrow stooped shoulders, Lowther at 52 could easily pass for 65. His ill-fitting grey suit jacket, perhaps it was once a royal blue, hangs on his frame like a burlap sack, and the doubled-up folds in his waistline suggest a drastic loss of weight. Like the jacket, the faded dress shirt could have originally been any colour. Pat's lover, Eugene McNamara, who also testified at the trial, is described by the same reporter as a chunky Ernest Hemingway, a short, rumpled intellectual. He is academically fashionable in an unfashionable checkered tweed sports coat, looking conspicuously distant, obviously uncomfortable with the entire affair. He doesn't mingle, nor is he invited to mingle with Pat's relatives. He has arrived alone each day at 10 a.m., and he leaves alone when the proceedings are finished for the day, usually around 3 p.m. During the six months since his wife's murder, Roy had a new story, and Roy's legal aid lawyer put on a spirited defence. Roy admitted finding his wife's body in the upstairs bedroom. He said he assumed one of the lovers had murdered her, and that as a husband, and with his criminal record, police would suspect him. He and Pat had gone to bed the night of September 23rd, he said, and woken up at 7, as he had previously told police. Pat hadn't gone up and left, though, as he'd said. He'd left her to sleep in, got the kids off to school, and then drove to Queen Elizabeth Park and parked by a pond, a place where he liked to go and think. He didn't see or speak to anyone and returned home around 11.30am, he said. Seeing that his wife wasn't downstairs, he went up to the bedroom to see how she was feeling. She was lying on the bloodstained bed, wearing only a pink shirt. He could see the ceiling and walls, splattered with her blood. Roy's story was that after he left the house, Pat had let in a lover and then refused him sex, so he'd bashed in her head with the family's hammer. Knowing that he would be the number one suspect in his wife's murder, and wanting to spare his daughters the trauma of his arrest, he panicked and decided to get rid of the body. In the hours before their kids returned from school, Roy tried to wash the blood off the ceiling, walls, dresser and bookcase. He said he dressed the body in pantyhose, pants and shoes, and then wrapped his wife in a sheet and a blanket and placed his wife's body in a sitting position in the closet. Later that night, when the girls had been put to bed, Roy brought the car around to the back of the house and parked as close as he could to the back door. Around 3am, he carried Pat's body down the stairs. The weight of the body caused him some difficulties, but he managed to carry it down the front hall, along a passage, through the kitchen, 
and down eight steps to his backyard. Under a full moon, he carried the body across the backyard and placed it in the trunk of his car. He returned to the bedroom to pick up a bloodstained mattress and the cloths that he'd used to wipe off the blood. He lost his balance on the back stairs, fell beneath the weight of the mattress, and hurt his back. He examined the back stairs later and noticed two bloodstains which he was unable to clean off. Then he went back to the house to get a couple of hours of sleep before sending his kids off to school. He then wrapped the bloodstained mattress in a blanket and put it on the roof of his car. He was on the road to Ferry Creek by 9am. He stopped in West Vancouver to rearrange the blanket on the mattress when it came loose and then he dumped it in a parking lot at Porter Cove. Later, he changed his mind and retrieved it. He threw the blood-stained rags and Pat's briefcase full of her writings in a roadside dump. He was in Ferry Creek before 11. Roy had first intended to dump the body in the dam, but he found it was too heavy for him to carry very far. Instead, he dragged the body about 20 metres to a point where the footpath dropped away to the creek. At the trial, he said, It dropped away and came to rest on a rock about three feet above the waters of the stream. I saw that so long as she remained there, she would not be seen. He took the blanket and sheet off the body and dropped it over a slope of about eight metres, where he hoped it would soon be covered by snow and hidden at least until the spring. But rain caused the creek to rise and the body floated down to the point where it was easily discovered. Here's former prosecutor Robert Deboe. Prosecutor on the case at the time was John Hall, an mm. excellent, excellent lawyer, and his cross examination was regularly regarded as formidable. Lowther thought he was wonderful. You know, he thought he was smarter than everybody else in the room, and John Hall was getting him to admit that he couldn't have killed her because he loved her so much. You know, this was the love affair of the century. And then what John Hall did is that he said, So then. As part of your cleanup, you rolled her up in a rug, naked, put her in the trunk of your car, drove up to Furry Creek, packed her out of the back of the car, and dumped her body onto the rough rocks uh, Furry Creek to be ravaged by animals and perhaps taken out to sea by the creek. Is that right? All of a sudden, he just looked ridiculous. Yeah, mm-hmm. the woman he loved. And this is how he treated her body. And that, to me, was a turning point in the trial where he just lost all credibility, and it killed him. As a defense lawyer, if you were representing him, would you have put him on the stand? Juries generally want to hear from an accused. And the evidence all pointed him, circumstantial though it be, for example, the opportunity, their bedroom, right? Mm. Even if they were estranged, they were still living in the same house. All of this motive evidence that I was referring to, I think that you would have been compelled to put him on the stand to tell the story that he did. Would you have let him tell that story, that he found the body but didn't do it, or would you have gone with I don't think there could be any other story. That's a simple defense, right? I admit I did all this stuff, but I didn't do that, right? I discovered the body. I didn't create the body. 
nobody said he was a mastermind. You know, as you mentioned, wasn't a criminal mastermind, but he wasn't stupid either. And I don't understand why he would take the hammer and the mattress with blood evidence on it to Main Island. Because he was poor and had been for a long time, that uh, these were possessions and he wasn't going to likely give up a hammer or a mattress and he was trying to retain them. That's my only explanation for it because I agree with you. He wasn't stupid. He had intelligence, but he certainly had personality disorder that afflicted him and caused him all sorts of problems in life. The jury didn't believe any of it. It took them a little over two hours to find him guilty of murder in the second degree. In a clear, firm voice, he told them, I did not kill my wife. I want you to understand that. I did not kill Pat. God help you if the real killer ever has the guts to confess. Roy died in prison in July 1985 at the age of 60. He maintained until the end that he did not kill his wife. Alan Saverick covered the early days of the sensational murder trial for the CBC. He says... The daily media stories turned Pat into a kind of celebrity victim. He kind of became a symbol for people and then started writing the Pat Lowther poems and all these kooks showed up that were terrible writers that would have... And they, they didn't have any craft. And I thought, why don't, they, why don't they read her and learn to love her poetry and then think maybe they could extend that, that incredible message that she had for humanity, right? Instead of just sort of pat the victim and then and make her sort of some kind of pat victim and then write these terrible poems. In 1980, the League of Canadian Poets established the annual Pat Lowther Memorial Award to honour a new book by a Canadian woman poet. And as mentioned earlier, Lorna Crozier has won three of them. What do you think would have happened to her had she lived? Where do you think she would have been? You know what happens to poets in our country. <laughs> we all live in obscurity. But I, I think she would have been extremely respected and revered. I wish I had uh, had a chance to hang around with her from, from what Patrick said. You know, it, she just sounded remarkable and down-to-earth and motherly and, and a poetic genius, I think. One of the interesting things, I think, is that she had such good young male friends you know, who were also artists and writers Mm. and who cared for her and who could see her talent and wanted to support her not only poetically but but also um, in her life. You know, they wanted to save her. It speaks really highly of who she must have been around them. Visit evelazarus.com and buy Eve a coffee if you're enjoying Cold Case Canada. If you'd like more information, check out my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. And please subscribe to the podcast. You can find more photos, credits and show notes on my website, evelazarus.com. I'm really happy to leave you with a promo from our friends at the Mind Over Murder podcast. Announcing Mind Over Murder, a new true crime podcast. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway murders Facebook group together with Kristen Dilley. 
My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Join us each week as we explore new true crime cases, as well as introduce you to experts from a variety of fields in the true crime space. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. Available on your favorite podcast platform.